Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. Our guest today is Neil Woodfine. Neil is an old-time Bitcoiner who uh, spent a lot of time working in China. And uh, he started off, he's currently the uh, marketing director of Unchained Capital. And he started off uh, first in working in OKCoin in China, one of the show's sponsors. And he then uh, established Remitsly, uh, a a payments startup in China, which uh, got bought out. He's worked for Blockstream as well. And now he's recently joined Unchained Capital 
and has extensive experience in uh, Bitcoin businesses and in particular in uh, Bitcoin businesses in China. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk to somebody with uh, real world experience in the world of Bitcoin business uh, about um, Bitcoin business in general, but Bitcoin businesses in China in particular and uh, the recent uh, crackdown that happened in China on the Chinese miners and uh, the state of uh, mining and trading and owning and selling and holding Bitcoin in China in general. Uh, so, Neil, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit about your background in, uh, in, in starting up a business in China and starting up a Bitcoin business in China in particular? Um, what got you into that? Well, what got you into Bitcoin? What got you into China? Uh, so I studied Chinese at It was the obvious choice. I bounced around a few different jobs um, after graduating. Um, I was working mostly around manufacturing, um, machinery, um, export industry uh, in China. Um, and my last job before jumping into Bitcoin was working in cement, um, cement plant production. And... Um, uh, during that time, I'd uh, bought my first Bitcoin, fell down the rabbit hole, got got the the Bitcoin bug hard, and um, started uh, researching everything I could about it. And I decided that my current career at the time um, was probably not what I wanted to be doing. Um, so I um, took a massive uh, pay cut to get into the industry, and I joined OKCoin, which was the biggest exchange in the world at the time, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, I just started at a pretty like kind of entry level position and um, quickly moved on to business development. Um, and like it was a great entry into the system. Like OKCoin was such a liquid exchange at the time. Um, a lot of foreign companies were also coming to OKCoin to get their Bitcoin liquidity. So I managed because I was running business development, I was getting to connect with um, a lot of different Bitcoin companies around the world. Um, and a lot of those contacts I still kind of have kept to this day. Um, so that was an awesome experience. Um, another great thing from OKCoin was the people that I met there. Um, one of the people that I became very good friends with was a guy called Richard Bensberg. You've probably seen him floating around Twitter now and then. Um, uh, excellent guy. He was running compliance. Um, he has a compli- like a traditional finance, uh, traditional finance compliance background, and uh, he's running compliance at OKCoin. And um, uh, yeah, so we became very good friends. Um, Richard uh, and I noticed that a lot of people were moving funds through OKCoin to um, deal with um, international trade transactions because they were finding that um, they were getting a better rate for their currency exchange by doing it through Bitcoin than um, just like transferring US dollars to China and converting into RMB. So we're like, aha, okay, this is an opportunity, like clearly... People are already using exchanges in a very kind of convoluted way. Let's like build a startup that does that for them. And so we um, we left OKCoin and we started um, Remitsi. Um, and Remitsi was specifically for business payments to China. Um, basically anybody anywhere in the world using like US dollars, pounds, euros, any of kind of the major currencies uh, could convert it to Remitsi and we would deliver the Remitsi payments to their uh, um, uh, clients or uh, vendors or whoever in, in China. And um, so it was mainly B2B and B2C. And actually B2C was probably um, our most successful area of our business. So it's like 
um, individual businesses outside of China making lots of individual renminbi payments into into China. And um, uh, yeah, uh, that was essentially the model. Um, like there was a few other businesses at the time doing a similar thing. So there was like Rebit doing um, Southeast Asia, um, BitPacer doing Africa, BitSpark was um, also a bit of Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. And then Wire, um, who were our competitor, also doing China, they, they grew a little bit faster than us and ultimately ended up acquiring our business. Um, but like also, I think these days you also have um, uh, Jack Maller's business, um, Strike, also doing a similar thing. Um, basically using Bitcoin as the rails to do international tra- transfers. Okay. And so um, h- how, how does that work exactly? So uh, you receive the Bitcoin in China from somebody who wants to send it from outside of China. And no, then you- um, basic, basically the business outside of, um, outside of China would uh, deliver US dollars or euros or pounds to one of our international bank accounts. We would com- go to a Bitcoin exchange or um, another liquidity provider and convert that into Bitcoin, um, move the Bitcoin to China, convert that into renminbi through one of the, the providers there, and then deliver the renminbi to their um, recipients. Um, yeah. And was was that really um, economical given the transaction costs on both ends? How, how successful has that model been? It was, it was very economical because um, uh, typically, especially at the time, um, there was a premium for Bitcoin in China. So you actually got an amazing exchange rate. Um, we were just doing it um, at uh, 0% when most of the companies were charging like 2 or 3%. Um, and then there was obviously a little bit of um, spread there available uh, for profit on our side. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was very successful. Um, what made it more difficult was regulations, which were kind of constantly shifting um, both on the um, traditional fiat payment side, and then also on the on the Bitcoin Bitcoin side. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so then, um, tell us how has uh, Bitcoin business in China evolved over the years? So at that time, you know, 2015, 2016, Chinese businesses, uh, Chinese Bitcoin businesses, were by far the most dominant in the world. So the biggest exchanges. I think there was a point at which the 10 biggest exchanges in the world were all in China. And um, there was huge progress in uh, Bitcoin uh, technologies and Bitcoin products and services in China. And then things changed and regulations uh, started to clamp down on it. So uh, what has happened now? Um, So, I mean, Bitcoin became massive in China as well as like the cryptocurrency industry in general. Um, I think it kind of was killed a little bit by its success. Um, there was, I mean, everybody's heard about the China bans, right? Um, there was this kind of constant series of uh, government interventions, not outright bans. Um, and each one of them was like targeted at a different sector or um, implemented in a different way. Um, and it just made life very difficult for anybody um, buying or trading Bitcoin um, and any businesses um, running there. And I mean, for us, um, running Remitsi, um, it hit us pretty hard when finally they did close down the exchanges. And I think the exchanges were closed down for like two or three months for some investigations. It was just a temporary closure. But during that time, we had to very, very quickly kind of switch our systems over to um, OTC pro- providers in the country, which were still allowed to operate. 
Um, and uh, yeah, and then the exchanges came back online. But then a few months later, they were closed again, and that was permanent. Um, and then we were just literally just permanently stuck in the um, OTC system. But that was all right because we'd already kind of moved our systems across. But um, like in China, um, the entrepreneurs there are pretty resourceful and adaptable. And um, like our uh, life always finds a way, right? So um, uh, immediately there was like new platforms popping up. So um, a number of um, government officials and central bank officials had made statements saying that it is legal for individuals to trade Bitcoin and to hold Bitcoin. Um, but uh, uh, the, the problem was, like, if you want to run an exchange, you had to have a license. And um, they're not going to give out any licenses for any Bitcoin exchanges. So that kind of, like, knocked them out. But what it did mean is, like, OTC is technically legal. And um, immediately, um, aside from kind of, like, just personal connection, OTC like traditional OTC businesses um, popping up. Um, there was also some platforms popping up for doing kind of P2P um, OTC uh, uh, trading. So basically individuals with Bitcoin can connect with um, people that want to buy Bitcoin and um, trade that way. And a lot of it was handled over like the instant messages, which are uh, like WeChat and stuff, which are very popular in China. Um, and uh, And yeah, and then also I think like, there was a lot of larger businesses, perhaps even the exchanges behind some of those OTC vendors um, on some of those platforms. There was like a lot of kind of, uh, they, they, they even developed like um, voucher and token systems. So like a little bit like Azteco, where you would buy a voucher and then redeem it on on the exchange for some Bitcoin. And like that helped get around the, the, the um, restrictions for a while. Uh, but these days, um, all of the exchanges are not officially operating in China. So they're like official HQs and stuff like that. They all operate outside of China, um, places like Singapore and, and elsewhere. And um, they've still left like some of their staff in China. And so like there's still people developing the business there, but officially they're not, they're not there. And um, the way people go and buy Bitcoin these days is they go to OTC vendors. And like rather than buying Bitcoin directly, typically they're buying USDT with their MMB. So they go to an OTC provider, buy some USDT, and then they go to the exchanges. And it's still the two main ones are OKCoin and Hobi. And then also there's a third contender these days, which is um, Binance, which wasn't around when I was there. Um, and they take the USDT and they start buying their, their, their Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies over there. Um, and that's pretty much the, the situation at the moment. There's still OTC going on there. Um, but I think like, the the like buy USDT and then trade on the exchanges probably accounts for the majority of the volume now, um, and unfortunately, um, for whatever cultural reasons, like in China, there is very very little Bitcoin maximalism. Um, unfortunately, like it's very difficult to find anybody that is uh, kind of um, driving that narrative. And uh, uh, we we used to run the Bitcoin meetup in Beijing and. Everybody wants to talk about anything but Bitcoin. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very kind of um, altcoin, shitcoin heavy um, community there. Well, uh, to go back to the Bitcoin standard, uh, you know, uh, this wouldn't be the first time for China where they make this kind of historical mistake. As I mentioned in the Bitcoin standard, China was the last country to go off the silver standard. Uh, it was China or India, I'm not sure which. But uh, the price of silver was declining 
um, slowly for most of the 17, for most of the 19th century, and then by in 1870, Germany switched from uh, a silver standard to a gold standard, and then silver essentially went into free fall. Uh, well, free fall by uh, analog uh, rock standard, not free fall by uh, modern digital shitcoin standard. It didn't uh, get rug pulled 99% over a weekend. It uh, lost a lot of its value over um, many decades. But by the 1930s, I think, is when China finally switched from a gold from a silver standard to a gold standard. And during that time, the silver had lost, I think it's, I mentioned it in the Bitcoin standard. I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like 70 or 80% of its value. Um, it's, uh, it, uh, in my mind, I mean, I mean, nobody really mentions this when discussing Chinese history and Chinese politics, but I think it's an enormously, enormously consequential uh, fact that very few people like to talk about. But uh, think about it this way, you know, uh, if you're Chinese, all of the savings you have are losing value. And foreigners, on the other hand, they have savings that are appreciating value. And so think about the late 19th century and the early 20th century and the problems that China faced during that time and how much they were intertwined with the fact that they chose the wrong uh, monetary medium. Um, so I guess um, perhaps there's a thing there uh, for uh, choosing altcoins over uh, the um, dominant monetary metal. But um, going back to the uh, uh, situation right now, so what do you think are, uh, what, what is the legality of these OTC desks? They're completely legal. There's nothing, uh, it's not black market. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeadeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. I wouldn't say legal. Uh, I wouldn't say completely legal. It's um, they, they operate in a gray space, and this is like definitely um, more common. Like people that live in um, the UK and the US are probably not as used to legal gray spaces, but it's a lot more common in China. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why the payment um, uh, um, industry in in China is so much more developed than the US is because like regulations weren't as clear and 
the payment companies were able to develop very, very fast in a kind of low regulation environment um, until like they became very big and then regulation started coming in. Um, there was also the P2P lending um, industry, which exploded in China for a while. It was huge. Um, it was even supported by the government for a while. They wanted to kind of like um, uh, drive innovation and stuff like that. But then very soon it turned out that a lot of these P2P lending platforms were complete scams and they were going bust left, right and center. Um, uh, but yeah, again, like operating in some very kind of like regulatory gray space. And the Bitcoin OTC providers, um, I think are basically in the in the same place. Like um, it's not like strictly legal and it's not strictly illegal either. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they themselves probably don't even fully know and they just kind of wing it and keep an eye on what uh, what's happening to the people around them and um, what's happening with the uh, um, announcements, announcements from the central government. I guess the fact that the OTCs are just not as um, conspicuous as exchanges is probably what helps them fly under the radar. When uh, exchanges are there, anybody can look at the exchange and anybody can see the numbers and anybody can see, you know, you can go in and you can trade and it looks like a little casino online and everybody wants to play with it. But OTCs are a little bit more, um, you know, you call a guy and um, you you, you speak to them. So perhaps... That helps. But, um, you know, it's interesting now because uh, over the last month, China, it seems to have completely banned uh, mining in uh, on its territory, which I think is an enormous development. So we've had many years in which we've heard China has banned Bitcoin, China has banned Bitcoin. There was definitely an element of uh, boy cry was wolf about this story this time. Um, I, I've I remember many, many cases when people said that China bans Bitcoin to the point where now, you know, people just didn't pay attention when many people didn't pay attention when this first came out. Um, But it looks like it was real. And I think in fairness, a lot of the earlier stuff, you know, it wasn't exactly China banning Bitcoin. It was China passing um, some directive or some law related to Bitcoin, um, which in the heat of the moment gets uh, quickly translated into China bans Bitcoin, but then it's actually much more sophisticated. But now we've seen the ban on mining. Um, Before we discuss that, I'm wondering, how likely do you think it is that you could see a ban on uh, OTC desks in China or more drastic uh, rules against holding Bitcoin in China? What do you think? Um, I I think anything's possible. Now that they've kicked them, I mean... I'm generally fairly bearish as far as global regulations uh, go, but I would never have imagined they would have 100% kicked um, Bitcoin mining out of the country. So, um, and as well, I think when we were running Remitzi, we never imagined they would just fully close down the exchanges as well. So, um, yeah, I think anything anything is possible. It depends on how bad like the financial and economic situation gets in China. I think if things get worse, like any kind of moves could be taken. And even without that, like some people in the central government may decide that, okay, we don't want this thing around here anymore and go with an even more kind of like all out ban. Um, it's a little bit more difficult for them to do that though, because they have got statements on record from like the highest of high officials saying that um, Bitcoin, holding Bitcoin is legal, trading Bitcoin is legal for an individual. So, um, they, I think they would have a little bit of kind of like narrative management 
around that if they decided to ban it. But like, I, yeah, I think it's more likely to happen. I mean, we talk about China bans almost every year now. I think it's probably just going to be a, a more incremental thing rather than like something sudden. There'll be like um, individual instances of um, smaller regulation that just makes dealing with Bitcoin in the country harder and harder. Um, and I, I, I don't see any kind of reason for that trend to reverse, not unless kind of some country proves that like it can be in the central government's interest to let Bitcoin flourish. Yeah. So do you have any ideas about what may have motivated the ban on mining? Um, it seems pretty surprising because I think a majority of uh, Bitcoin mining happens in isolated and uh, excess energy um, locations, you know, hydroelectric dams or places where they built extra capacity where, you know, they have... Um, because obviously there's a lot of central planning there. So you you do have cities that get built with um, big capacity uh, power plants, but then the cities don't quite work out as well as you would expect. And so you have a lot of idle capacity running, and then you could hook it up to a Bitcoin miner and um, help defray some of the losses from over-investing in this. Um, and yet they've essentially, it seems like they've banned this option for everybody. So it doesn't matter where you're getting your electricity from just no more mining in China. Am I correct? Um, I'm not 100%. I don't think anybody is 100%. Like I have friends and contacts in China and you speak to them and they're not 100% sure either. Um, it looks like it's it's 100% out. Well, that, that's kind of the, the best assessment at the moment. Um, and in terms of what motivated it, um, it's difficult to tell. I like you say that uh, most of the energy that was being used was getting wasted anyway. It was excess energy production. Um, but maybe in the areas where it wasn't, maybe it was creating kind of like um, competition and shortages. Um, I mean, places like Xinjiang and stuff, I don't think we're using a lot of hydroelectricity. I think there was probably a lot of coal involved there. So maybe that was causing competition with um, uh, local uses and like causing a little bit of... Um, uh, resentment from people there and like any kind of like social unrest in China um, is generally dealt with very, very quickly. Like that can't be allowed to happen. Um, but that that's all just 100% speculation. Um, they may just have decided, like somebody may have decided that they just, I mean, they got out of bed the wrong, wrong side of bed. They got out of bed on the wrong side one day and just decided they didn't like Bitcoin mining and decided to get rid of it. So it could be as much as that. Um, but like, I mean, from a like geostrategic point of view, allowing mining to continue in China makes more sense to me. Even if you don't like Bitcoin, like it's better to have the mining closer to you to like do something with it later. Um, but knocking it out, like maybe, maybe that's better in the in the long run for everybody else. Yeah, I mean, what do you what do you think of the implications of this um, for China and for Bitcoin? How do you think of it? Um, so, I mean, first of all, I think it's not, not a good thing. Um, like Chinese miners deserve the position that they're in. Like, um, China doesn't like produce the best wallets or anything like that in, in the Bitcoin space, but they do do the best Bitcoin mining hardware, the best mining pools and stuff like that. So like, it's really sad to see all of these guys that have like thrown their lives and like years and years and years of work into these, um, businesses, just having them completely trashed. Like a few of them have managed to get out and continue operations elsewhere but a lot of people have like lost a lot of work and they were very very profitable businesses so i think like from that perspective it's really bad um the other thing is like 
I think it's good to have global distribution. It's good to have like multiple different cultures and multiple different kind of um, legal systems um, uh, making home to uh, 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 Bitcoin mining. Um, like for instance, I've already mentioned how like Chinese entrepreneurs are a bit more adaptable and flexible and like adventurous than I think their Western counterparts. Um, and like, I mean, one instance I was hearing like in the tail end of um, this mining ban, um, a lot of the um, uh, mining operators were loading their Bitcoin mines into containers and putting them on the backs of trucks and reversing the trucks onto these um, power production sites, hooking them up and then generating some hashes. Um, and then when like these poli police were spotted coming down mountain roads by like dedicated spotters, they would just disconnect and drive away. And then like, even if they were caught on the road, it's like, what are you doing? Oh, we're just shipping the miners out. So it's like, there's no evidence of them operating. Now, I just cannot imagine um, Western uh, mining companies having the balls to do like um, stuff like that. And I think actually that that's a benefit to the industry to have people that are willing to go that far to generate the hashes and to make their to make their profits, um, and to kind of like uh, be flexible with with the rules, so like I think that's a big loss. Um, and then I think also like these days we're starting to see things emerge, like the Bitcoin Mining Council, and I think like the Western um, uh, trend towards towards this like ESG mentality is possibly even a bigger threat than the Chinese government. Um, yeah, ESG I, is uh, environmental sustainability and uh, governance, and it's the latest buzzword making its uh, way around uh, the fiat world in which uh, basically you pay people some money to give you some uh, gold stars that say that you are good and responsible, and uh, it's, it's, it's a great grift for the people who award these points. Yeah, I think the S is for social, actually, it's for like... Um, contributions to society. Oh, um, social, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to keep uh, track of all the buzzwords. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like, I mean, the way it works in China at the moment is that you have the central government, the central entity, and it's like kind of playing cat and mouse with Bitcoin businesses. But like ESG is individual, like individual private companies, lots of them, all going out to enforce these like ideals on their own companies and then the broader world as well, which is kind of a little bit more risky in my opinion. Um, as well, like I think things like the Mining Council, they talk about like um, sustainability and like um, uh, environmental concerns, but then they, they specifically use the term ESG in a lot of their materials. And it's like, okay, so if you're worried about the environment, like why have you tagged on this S and this G? Like what else are you going to be doing um, later? Uh, and um like I, I kind of see things like the Mining Council, like let's see where it goes, but I think it's likely that it's a precursor to more coercive um, industry bodies, like um, um, bodies that set standards and then other industry participants have to follow, otherwise they like have certain action taken against them. Um, I think it's imaginable that these bodies will start informing like future regulators on how to kind of regulate their fossil fuel competition. And it's almost like, by setting up these bodies, they're implicitly accepting that certain actions will be taken against their competition, certain actions will be taken against fossil fuel miners, and they're going to stand by while that happens because like, we've created this group and we've proven that we're like, um, ESG compliant. So I, I think that's definitely problematic. And 
the good thing about China is they, at the moment, they don't buy into any of that crap. Like the entrepreneurs there, just they're, they're profit driven and they're going to like um, deliver the hashes to the Bitcoin network and do that in as efficient a way as, as they possibly can. So like, uh, yeah, I think that was, that was a loss. And then just more broadly, um, I think the, the, the mining ban in China demonstrates the vulnerability of mining as an institution to state interventions. So like, it's not just um, running mining farms, it's chip production, rig production, and uh, farm operation. So, um, uh, I mean, like for one example is um, 99, almost 99% of chip production is happening in Taiwan at the moment, right? Like most of the, the Bitcoin um, mining equipment is happening in Taiwan. Taiwan's right next to China, and China like has its eyes on Taiwan and has done for for a few decades. Now, like if China can like ban um, the mining of Bitcoin within its borders, like what what kind of threat does that pose to the production of mining equipment itself? And there is there is literally no other options for producing chips, and it would be very um, it would take a very long time to set up a foundry um, elsewhere in reaction to any actions that happened in China. So I think like we're all kind of excited and. And, and optimistic about Bitcoin, like um, myself included, but um, like there are some real threats to the way the system works today. Um, and like this, this was kind of a bit of a wake up call to the fact that like, okay, mining, it, it, it lends itself to economies of scale. It lends itself to centralization. There are places that are best for Bitcoin mining and you better have a big farm. Otherwise you're not going to be as, um, profitable as the big one, uh, your, your your larger competition. So and and then another thing is like this was a ban. Like I said, not not so bad. All the stuff's kicked out of China. And they could have done something worse with it. And the worst thing is confiscations. So instead of doing the ban, they could have actually just confiscated all of the equipment, and that causes a really big problem for everybody. Like it's not going to destroy the network, but it could cause a lot of like um, censorship and um, um, gridlock issues on on the Bitcoin network. So. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's a bit of a concern. Yeah, I think uh, you know the, we saw something in the range of fifty to sixty percent of the mining hash power uh, decline over the uh, past few weeks. So that means something in that range is the amount of mining that happens in China. Um, and I, yeah, I, th- I think I agree with you, but I'll. Uh, I think it is a threat, but I think, you know, it's, uh, I always like to say miners are more like the slaves of Bitcoin or the servants of Bitcoin rather than the uh, masters in that um, it's uh, ultimately as a miner, you have two choices. You can uh, mine according to the consensus rules that are set up by the nodes, or you can waste electricity, waste a lot of electricity on uh, uh, making uh, on trying to achieve proof of work solutions that uh, don't work and that don't get you anything. So, you know, you can choose to uh, play nice or you can have fun staying poor, as Bitcoiners would say. Um, set up all these machines that connect all that electricity and mine nothing with it, get no revenue for it. So uh, it's one of the, um, it, 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 it's less of a concern, I would say, uh, than nodes, than, you know, being able to compromise nodes, perhaps. But um, it seems like perhaps, um, you know, maybe we are on the cusp of a, uh, a downsizing of the mining industry globally, in a sense, uh, 
as it got really big in China, we had government get uncomfortable about it. And uh, maybe the large mining farm model is not going to be very uh, popular around the world. Um, you know, it's, uh, and then people will have to mine in um, you know smaller arrangements and they'll have to mine with uh, more mobile and nimble arrangements like the trucks you mentioned who are connecting to uh, power plants and can be very quickly uh, moved. Maybe we'll see more things like that, you know, trucks driving around to places where there's uh, waterfalls and hooking up a, a hydroelectric generator and uh, hooking it to the miners. Um, you know, maybe maybe we'll shift toward the mining process that goes like this. And I guess the the, the good thing is that the difficulty adjustment will um, will always adjust in a way that um, optimizes for us to being able to com- continue to operate the network. Um, but uh, I, so I think I agree with you in that it is a ter- terrible thing for Chinese miners, and in particular, you know, you think about just how much money and investments and capital has been spent on this over the years it's uh it's a pretty sad thing to see um but i think for the network overall um you know perhaps the uh the fact that they've diversified the location you know instead of the majority being in china well now no nothing is in china and so everything is going to be more distributed in less jurisdictions uh, in, in in more jurisdictions and so there's less power that each jurisdiction can have over it. It's um, it's 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 an interesting uh, um, idea. It's it, it, it's we it, it's weird to think of how it is going to go in the future. I have to say though, I think um, you know people like to talk about Bitcoin mining as if it is geopolitically um, important. I must admit. I don't really see that. I think Bitcoin mining is kind of like gold mining in that uh, Switzerland was on the gold standard and it was it, it was the country that probably had the most gold per capita. And into the 20th century, it was definitely uh, after the um, uh, all the world went off the gold standard in 1914 or 1930s, depending on how you look at it. Switzerland stayed on the gold standard until the 1970s. And so it had an enormous amount of gold and everybody wanted to send their gold to Switzerland for safekeeping in the 19, in the middle of the century. And yet um, the, um, the Swiss didn't mine any gold and there was no Swiss mining. There was no Swiss gold mining. Uh, people just don't mine gold in Switzerland. On the other hand, a lot of very poor African countries had a lot of gold mining and that didn't do them much good. You know, people would mine the gold and they would buy it and sell it. I think the mining is um, is not what's important. I think what's really important is the hodling. Or I, I should clarify that. And the, the, the mining is important to the extent that it um, uh, increases the amount of hodling. But what matters is the hodling because... Um, the mining, you know, it's a, it's, it's a business enterprise where you're going to put in some fiat and get out some Bitcoin. And hopefully the Bitcoin you're going to get is more than the Bitcoin that you could have bought with the fiat when you uh, first invested. Um, whether it is or not is just an entrepreneurial uh, question that uh, people would go through. And uh, if they make a profit and they uh, sell the Bitcoins, then it's really no different from any other business that made a profit. And, you know, they used up some Bitcoin. They held Bitcoin for a little while. 
they've helped the Bitcoin network uh, grow. But um, in the long run, uh, it, if they convert it to fiat, it doesn't really matter. So I'm not so sure about all of the um, uh, geopolitical importance of having mining. Uh, perhaps it's important if you wanted to attack Bitcoin to continue to keep the miners, as you kind of alluded to. But as a country, you know, the benefit you get from mining, I think, is um, um, I, I think there's a bit of a mercantilist idea here that, you know, if the miners are located in China, then that gives China an advantage. Um, I think it gives Chinese businesses and individuals an advantage because it allows them to make money off of it. But does it really help China politically to have it or not? Um, mining in particular. I think um, the only angle I could think there is they could use it as a threat to the rest of the world if it moved to a Bitcoin standard. If you have the mining within your borders or the majority of the mining, you can start to say, well, we're going to push this button if if you don't do X, Y, or Z. And then um, that might like cause people to act in certain ways. Um, so, I mean, that, that's the only angle there. Um, I mean, even if you got into that situation, you may just see an increase of hash power elsewhere in the world to kind of combat the threat, right? Um, and that's the good thing about proof of work versus proof of stake. Like once somebody's got the majority in proof of stake, like good luck with that. But at least with proof of work, you can just, you can build more. It's external to the system and um, push, push the attackers out. Um, but yeah, I think certainly from an economic point of view, it's not, I mean, unless Bitcoin mining is in, even more profitable than it is today. Like I don't see it being a huge kind of economic benefit to the country that it resides in. Yeah, I, th I I tend to agree. I think the um, the important thing is how many people end up holding the currency. And so if they ban OTC desks, I think that would be a big blunder. I think countries that are preventing their citizens from just accumulating Bitcoin, they're the ones that are committing a big mistake because they're just forcing their citizens to buy at a price 10 or 100 or 1,000 times higher than um, other uh, prices. I, I like to say... Uh, one thing that in which Bitcoin is different from other kinds of technologies and networks, if you're 10 years late to Facebook and then you decide to get a Facebook account, the day you get the Facebook account, it works as well as the account of somebody who um, has been there for 10 years. You know, it has all the functionality. Same is true for Google or Amazon or Netflix. You get in 10 years late, you still get to watch all the shows on Netflix. You can order all the stuff on Amazon. But with Bitcoin, the user experience is vastly different if you get in 10 years uh, uh, within 10 year difference because you will be able to get far, far fewer sats if you got in 10 years later or to any date, most likely. So it's, uh, I, I think it's really about the hodling is what matters. And um, to the extent that this hurts the hodlers, to the extent that it's forced Chinese people to sell, I think it is harmful for China in the long term. But uh, other than that, I don't see it as that big of a threat to Bitcoin or to um, uh, to, to China itself uh, as, as a problem. But and in terms of Bitcoin, of course, it's 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 the yeah, it's the uh, as you said, the proof of work is the is the innovation here. I mean, the the way that I see it is the only reason that proof of stake systems uh, continue to survive, and there aren't really any pure proof of stake systems. They still all have some element of uh, Proof of work. I think the few proof of stake systems that have been tried have uh, more or less shut down or gone to zero at this point. 
But the reason that such ideas can float around in the uh, crypto space, if you want to call it that, is basically because Bitcoin runs on proof of work. Bitcoin is uh, the big daddy and it protects everybody. And everything is redeemable in Bitcoin and Bitcoin continues to be the frame of reference. I think if we had a system of proof of stake, it would have been taken out. Um, and, and, and it wouldn't be able, you know, you could take it out very easily because there's no frame of reference in the digital world like Bitcoin that is a proof of work system that you can uh, use for international system, settlement. Without Bitcoin, shitcoins are just... Um, local local boards running currencies um, at the mercy of their uh, national government. And yeah, and when, uh, you know, if you had a proof of stake system and uh, 51% of the people were in China, then the Chinese government can uh, really get very significant changes done to the protocol. But with the proof of work system, even if 70% of the miners are in China, the miners shut down, the equipment is shipped out, it's sold to foreigners or it's sent to foreigners, and um, that's it. The, the, the system adapts. Difficulty drops. We're going to witness the biggest difficulty drop this week. I don't know if you, know, if you noticed, but um, it's going to go down. So far, it seems like it's going at 26 and a half. Uh, now we're recording on Wednesday, and it's estimated to be dropping at 26 and a half on uh, Friday or Saturday. Uh, Friday night or Saturday morning, roughly. And uh, it's it's the biggest drop in difficulty in Bitcoin's history. It's going to be an enormous decrease in the difficulty, which means an enormous increase in the profitability of miners that remain. And so the beauty of how Bitcoin works is, uh, okay, so this punishes the miners that exist in China, that work in China, um, but it rewards miners that are in other places. And that's just the beauty of the price mechanism because now uh, money uh, there's more money in the hands of foreigners uh, or foreigners with respect to China who will be buying the equipment and so the equipment will relocate um, and the miners will be able to start mining more and more and mining is going to move to a place where it is uh, accepted and valued more and the hash rate will adjust maybe it'll decline maybe it'll decline more over the next few weeks and months but no matter how much it declines, you know, ultimately, um, the more that the hash rate declines, the more profitable the remaining miners are. And that causes the price to um, increase because the remaining miners start accumulating more coins and that increases the price and then finances more miners to get in in other locations. And it could well be the case that right now we see more of the uh, bootleg kind of uh, mining taking place um, as, uh, you know, smaller operations proliferate rather than uh, bigger operations. One thing that worries me is, um, you know, we saw with the coronavirus crisis how a lot of the world essentially copied China very quickly. You know, the Chinese uh, implemented um, lockdowns and uh, very quickly the rest of the world was on board with this as a great idea. And um, I wonder, you know, if the kind of uh, Chinese international influence that uh, managed to get a lot of the world to um, see the value of these draconian uh, lockdown measures, if that kind of uh, thinking now translates into international uh, affairs around Bitcoin and we see a global coordinated attack against Bitcoin. Do you think such a thing is in the cards? What do you think? 
yeah, I mean, I've said already that I think anything is on the cards at the moment, um, especially after seeing the reaction to uh, Corona. Like, I think um, a lot of things happened in such a short space of time, which I probably would have thought was never possible. Um, and that makes me think that, yes, okay, so like things can change very, very quickly. Um, uh, so, yeah, um, like uh, I think there's already the narrative being built out there that, um, I mean, like aside from just Bitcoin being bad for the economy and stuff like that, like the mining is is specifically being targeted as a threat to the climate and a threat to humanity. And so I think they have um, uh, the narrative that they need to be able to um, start making laws against um, against Bitcoin mining. Um, again, I think it will probably be gradual rather than the very sudden um, uh, ban that happened in China. But they could start like pushing out, okay, no fossil fuel mining. And then it's like Steve Barber's business gone and, and a bunch of others. And that's like... Um, gradually like finding other reasons to, to push out the um the renewable guys too um so yeah i could um i could see that happening i mean like we, we saw with the corona stuff like people saw drones flying overhead barking orders at people to get back in their houses and people having their, their doors welded shut and then like in the west people were shocked by it it was like that's crazy like can you believe it and then literally just like i mean it was like four or five months later there was drones flying overhead in Australia, like in, in the UK as well, um, shutting orders of people to that they shouldn't be outside. And, and it's like, it's normal now. It's like people are like, yeah, that's what you need some, need some of that. So um, I think, yeah, it might seem crazy that China would ban Bitcoin mining right now, but um, it might not seem so crazy in, in a few months' time when um, some of the Western countries start doing the same. Like it's an obvious narrative, like, okay, so we ban fossil fuel mining because that's obvious, obviously bad. But then, like the the green ones are left, I and mean, the easy narrative there is like they're sucking up energy from green sources that other people could be using. So, like, let's use that energy for like heating people's homes or putting people's lights on and stuff like that. So, like Bitcoin mining, it's not necessary um, energy use. Let's get rid of that. I could imagine that happening, but um, fingers crossed it doesn't. Uh, the, the idea is that um, like there's always going to be that. Um, um, there's always going to be some small rogue countries that are going to allow it to happen, right? But um, I think if we saw the international coordination that went into the pandemic response, um, it's pretty scary. Like literally, there was almost nowhere to hide. Um, and uh, and then if you look at like US dollar, like any money laundering regulations, they're also getting increasingly global. You're getting compliance from pretty much every single country on the planet, like places like Switzerland. Are no longer able to like offer privacy to their clients and stuff like that's like really kind of sinking its claws into every country out there and yeah i don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that you would see such a massive kind of international coordination against bitcoin um like bitcoin does threaten the modern state and the way they operate every single one of them operate today which is on very cheap money given to them through central banks um if um bitcoin starts to threaten that like I could imagine them all kind of clubbing together to to um work against the the shared threat yeah uh I think there's a possibility there, and um I don't think they could win ultimately, but I think they can um the, the, they can't destroy bitcoin there'll still be places where you can mine 
And um, actually, one way of thinking about it is that government restrictions and regulations on mining are basically a part of the difficulty adjustment of mining. <laughs> um, as the hash rate increases a lot and as the profitability of mining increases a lot, um, one difficulty that you know that arises, so first of all, the Bitcoin um, uh, algorithm will raise the difficulty in order to make it harder for you to uh, mine so that the number of coins stays constant. But as the value of these coins rises in dollar terms or in uh, fiat terms, then you get the angry governments that um, start stomping their feet and demanding you stop because they want uh, their share. And it might be the case, you know, now we're going to enter a point in which miners in many countries are going to be handicapped, basically, uh, through much higher costs for uh, being able to comply. And I think... Uh, in my opinion, you know, we've had a se- we've had a seminar here where we discussed the Bitcoin Mining Council. I think it's more of a threat to American miners than it is a threat to Bitcoin. In that, what they're likely going to do is to do something similar to what um, uh, Elon Musk uh, has going with cars, where in car producers who run who make uh, gasoline cars have to pay him and. Uh, uh, have to pay him renewable energy credits because he's um, producing immaculately conceived cars from the farts of angels, whereas they are <laughs> producing horrible, bad, evil cars that are made from the farts of the devil and involve uh, combustion, which emits gases, which, as we all know, all gases are evil. Uh, so uh, I think we could have something like that in Bitcoin mining, where the most efficient miners are going to have to be handicapped and most efficient miners in the kind of jurisdictions that um, fall for this kind of nonsense, they're going to be handicapped in a way. And you can think about it as being part of the difficulty adjustment. Um, So, uh, you know, mining in a country that has uh, people worried about combustion and freaking out about carbon dioxide means that you end up having to pay, uh, you know, a premium on the cost of mining. So you need even cheaper electricity there in order to mine. Uh, whereas everywhere else where there are no restrictions, then, you know, they, the the mining there can be done cheaper. So you're going to relocate it. Um, and, and I think a global, a global, I think this is the key thing that people miss. If there is a global ban on Bitcoin mining, then we get a lot of the Bitcoin difficulty without the hashing you know a lot of the cost of the difficulty a lot of the cost of mining is in setting up uh, gray market or black market uh, mines and so because it's going to be so expensive to be able to get a large number of asics uh, set up and connected properly um, that's the difficulty you know even even though the hash rate is going to be smaller um, and the difficulty will decline. You can think of the difficulty as increasing because you can uh, you need a uh, you need a higher cost for operating uh, Bitcoin, and so that kind of uh, uh, it washes out eventually because the system ends up working anyway. Because every ten minutes we are um, finding a block, and every two weeks we're readjusting in order to make the difficulty bring us to about two minutes per block. I mean, another thing on that point is that um, mining economics do trend towards centralization, at least 
the way things are right now. Um, but centralization draws attention and um, uh, makes it more likely that you have to um, adhere to any compliance that might come down the line in the future. Um, regulations and compliance are extremely expensive. Like anybody that works in the financial industry will know that like, okay, you're like, I mean, just doing like, let's say you're complying to some ESG requirements, like your environmental um, side, that's going to have costs associated with it. Like you're using like um, um, suboptimal equipment to generate your energy. And then on the so social side, like you've got to do some philanthropic efforts and like burn money that way. And like mining trends towards being very price sensitive, right? Like the, you only have a very small um, profit margin um, that will make like all of the decentralized miners, the guys that don't have the economies of scale, suddenly they might actually start to end up being more profitable. And you might have like this kind of regulations be forced this decentralization effect. Now, maybe there's a little bit of wishful thinking, like talking there, but um, I could imagine that 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 being the case. No, I think I, I think I agree with you because you're going to be uh, raising the difficulty uh, disproportionately higher for people who are in uh, centralized mining operations as opposed to uh, people who are in smaller operations. Basically, the smaller your operation, the lower the chances that you're going to have to pay a price for the government or that you're going to be regulated and, or shut down. And so, you know, maybe this does end up leading to a million uh, miners in a million garages all over the world. Um, and, you know, a few smaller rigs here and there. And this could well be the case, which is not a terrible thing. Um, and I also don't think, you know, the centralization of mining is that much of a terrible thing. Um, geographically, we've had it happen in China for quite a while, and I, we, you know, theoretically, we can think about many ways in which it could go wrong, but it doesn't seem to go wrong in practice. It's one of those things about Bitcoin that, um, and a lot of things about Bitcoin are like that. You can do, you can, you can find a lot of um, ways in which this shouldn't work in theory. But it does work in practice, and that's uh, generally how uh, most no-coiners uh, lose their minds uh, coming up against <laughs> this uh, conundrum where things just shouldn't work, but they continue to do. And I think the centralization of Bitcoin mining might be one of those things. It, it, I don't think it was that big of a problem, perhaps, um, but it's not a problem anymore. We're um, getting rid of this as a uh, problem because we're distributing all over the world. All right. Um, let's see. Who's got uh, questions? Anybody want to ask anything? Peter, do you have anything to ask? Um, yeah, I just had a thought to share, which was that what Neil was just saying there about the centralization of mining reminds me a little bit of James Dow Davison and William Rees Mogg's book, The Sovereign Individual. Um, because one of the key uh, points made in that book is that the reason why states were able to grow in power during the 19th century was because industry tended to centralize around factories and there was a lot of migration from the countryside through to cities. And that created this kind of uh, honeypot of productivity, which was easier to capture. So I was just kind of saw a bit of a parallel there regarding there being this economy of scale centralization um with with bitcoin mining and uh, that kind of general dynamic which was that like the more centralized things become for economic reasons 
um, well, things are likely to become more centralized for economic reasons in, in certain niche areas and mining may, may well be one of them. But then there is also this kind of historical tendency that when they do become more centralized, they tend to uh, become threatened by, by state power. So I just thought that was an interesting, um, interesting parallel. I think the good thing about um, on that, the good thing about Bitcoin mining is it can happen at small scale as well. Um, like every hash is just a hash. You don't need a massive, massive factory to, I mean, it's better for your economies of scale, but um, if the larger operations are getting compromised, like it's very possible for like you to run a Bitcoin mine at home um, uh, and like people to individually support the network. Any other questions? I wondered, Neil, do you have any uh, sense of the, what, what in China, what is the uh, sense that the black market would, how active do you think the black market would be if they tried to suppress Bitcoin? Uh, I mean, I would imagine it would be very, <laughs> very active. Um, like like I've said, Chinese um, people are very good at just finding a way. Um, it's just like if if there's profit to be made, like people will bend the rules pretty hard um, to make it work. Um, so I think, and as well, like Bitcoin lends itself to like operating internationally and then delivering services from abroad. Um, like you would have uh, Chinese entrepreneurs moving outside of China to deliver Bitcoin services within China. So um, I mean, to some extent, that's already happening. Um, and I think like the harder the central government there pushes, the, the kind of the more creative the entrepreneurs in China will get. Yeah, I think that's, uh, uh, I think it's probably more of a uh, living under communism thing than a Chinese thing. I think all people become resourceful once, uh, <laughs> once you put them under a communist regime. Um, and and they become very good at avoiding uh, very good at avoiding regulations. Um, whereas if you live in a place where regulations aren't too onerous and too insane, it's possible and likely for people to uh, go along and not develop a culture of uh, of cunningly finding a way. Uh, Peter, you had a follow up question. Sorry, go ahead, Neil. Uh, just like to give you an idea, like I heard about one of the Chinese. Um, exchange um, executives. He'd just been in, held in police custody for months um, uh, for questioning about this and that. I, like, I, I God knows what kind of um, stuff was being discussed. Um, and then he came back out and he immediately the next day went back to work, just like answering client calls and stuff and um, chatting, chatting to us as well. So like they, they really like, they're willing to take a risk. Um, it's a, like there's, prof, there's a lot of profit to be made. Um, and um, and the rules in China are generally like flexible enough for people to get away with stuff. So, yeah, I think China will be all right. Yeah. Uh, Peter, you had a follow-up question? Yeah, it was just a follow-up question on the regulatory changes that Neil referenced when he was giving the overview of working OKCoin OK and then Remitsi and then the different challenges that came in. Um, I'm just kind of curious as on a kind of practical level, how you were able to stay uh, 
abreast of all of these new regulations that came in. Because one of the things that I found also, you know, living and working in China um, was that there are many different regulations, but they're much more ambiguous than they are in, in Britain. So there are kind of general directives that come from the government, but there's often a lot of ambiguity in the laws. So how did you kind of navigate the ambiguity and how did you find out and act upon like new regulations that were coming in? And I'd also yeah. be curious to hear like whether you think that ambiguity uh, that there is regarding Chinese law represents a kind of advantage for areas like Bitcoin, uh, because you already referenced that payment systems were able to grow quickly um, historically, but then they got kind of clamped down and afterwards. Um, do you think that in general, that ambiguity is a good or a bad thing for, for businesses operating in China? Um, so I'll answer those in reverse order. Um, so I'm kind of convinced that the ambiguity is intentional um, a lot of the time, maybe not always, but um, the good thing about the ambiguity is that it gives the um, officials flexibility to arbitrarily enforce their rules. So if they don't like particular businesses, they can decide like, okay, you haven't been following the rules and the business that they do like, they can be like, okay, you're, you're okay. So I think there's a little bit of, um, I think it's a little bit intentional, but um, that's also a good thing for um, creative businesses. You can kind of get away with stuff and then not go to jail, like, because you can prove that you've satisfied certain kind of loopholes. Um, and in terms of how do we navigate the ambiguity, like we were a foreign run startup. So it was a wholly foreign owned enterprise as they called in China. So we didn't like, we didn't have as much flexibility as a Chinese company did. Not only like were we under more scrutiny, but um, also like we just, we're British guys. We culturally cannot like work out the kind of like we can't read between the lines as well as a local can so that put us in more of a tough spot than some of the other um chinese companies operating but like they couldn't really operate in our space because we were offering services to foreign companies and that's something where chinese companies really really struggle so uh, we were kind of safe in that regard um but uh, basically just whenever a, a central government announcement was made like if it wasn't clear to us what was happening we just have to go into the industry and speak to like our partners um, other friends and um, um, acquaintances within the industry and just work out how they were interpreting things um it was like it was a pretty like shaky experience richard was the person that was handling most of this so i was kind of hearing secondhand about what was going on um but like the, the the ground is constantly moving under your feet and like it does happen to some extent in the west although they tend to go with just like one massive lump of new regulations and then you deal with that for a few years whereas china is like more kind of incremental and they're changing yeah well, i mean one of our biggest problems was um the uh, uh the third party payment providers There's, there was like hundreds of them in china and I think at some point, like some central government official probably decided they wanted to consolidate that industry a little bit. Um, and then they just like through various different means made, made a bunch of these third party payment providers illegal. And a bunch of those guys were our partners. So um, that was actually worse than the uh, Bitcoin exchange bans. And that's, that stuff is just like constantly happening um, uh, all the time. And uh, you just you just have to work with it. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's really difficult. And like, I don't envy entrepreneurs working in China because you can have a really good thing going and then all of a sudden it's not going anymore. 
Um, but um, if it if it does work, like the profits in China are amazing. Like it's such a big market. It's um it's uniform. Like it is worth like attempting it, but frustrating when it goes wrong. So I'm wondering, Neil, you've uh, worked in Bitcoin companies all over the world and you've dealt with uh, bureaucrats and regulators. Uh, do you have any thoughts on where you think uh, where you think is best currently for Bitcoin companies? Uh, if you were to start from scratch, uh, you wanted to start a startup, where do you see a, a fertile ground for uh, Bitcoin companies? Um, <laughs> nowhere. <laughs> I don't... Um, Online, I, don't I guess. Think, uh, yeah, I, th- I think if um, if I was going to start something from scratch, I would make pains to make sure that it was mobile, that whatever structure I set up, I was able to shift jurisdictions um, at a moment's notice. Um, and I would also just make sure I don't touch fiat because as soon as you interface with um, fiat currencies, that's like where you start having the most most problems. Like um, if you're an exchange, like you, you're going to have to comply and you're going to have a lot of um, headaches day to day. Um, things can, and like if, if you're not doing something exactly right, they can just completely cut you off. Like the OTC providers in China, their, their biggest challenge is probably not um, uh, like legal issues, but actually just banks shutting off their, their accounts. Um, so like exchanges, payment companies, anything like that, interfacing with fiat, that's, that's going to like lock you down to a specific jurisdiction and also pose a lot of regulatory threats. Um, but in terms of where's, where's best right now, um, I would just find somewhere with um, very little kind of Bitcoin regulation and try and try and um, work with that for as long as possible. Um, like, I think Beauty On is quite big on this. Like, just make the business really successful and work, and then like uh, let the the regulations um, catch up with you. And to to some extent, I mean, like he, he uses Uber as as the example there, but to some extent, that's exactly what happened with um, Alipay and WeChat Pay in China. They, they also just grew really fast, really quickly while they, they were still operating in a gray space. And, um, and then the regulations finally caught up with them. And now like, it's kind of like the ladder's being pulled up behind them, like so many regulations, like they don't have to worry about competitors anymore. So it kind of worked out well for them. Um, but yeah, I, I, would, I would try and find somewhere with low regulations because they're going to slow you down in terms of building a Bitcoin startup. And also if you're doing Bitcoin only and you're operating from somewhere with low Bitcoin regulations, you can probably offer your services um, globally for now at least yeah i think there's something to be said about places that don't have a lot of bitcoin laws because um you can get your business started um as a you know software or data center business uh, initially and then uh, when you're successful um and they're getting taxes from you and uh, they're uh, seeing the growth they're gonna want to accommodate you they're gonna want to try and fit the rules for you perhaps so it's a good chance to influence a place and in in, in in getting the rules to go in a good way i guess um as opposed to you know all of these uh old timer places that uh <laughs> where you know the, the the relationship with bitcoin's already developed gone sour and uh you're you're moving into a place with a lot of baggage basically yeah, I mean, it's like jurisdictions like the Isle of Man, for instance, which are welcoming Bitcoin businesses, but they have like immediately your business is regulated by uh, whatever the, I think it's called the FCA or something over there. And like like immediately you have all of these costs piled on top of you for compliance. And you can't work, like as a small startup, like you need to be bootstrapping. You can't be can't be working with that. And you can't like, when I was working at um, Remitzi and Wire in particular, 
regulations would inform every single decision that we made, like whether it was like onboarding a client or like implementing a new um, uh, product update, like regulations and compliance, like was rearing its ugly head and we had to like, okay, does this fit? Can this, uh, what jurisdiction does this client come from? Um, can he, can we onboard? And like, it was, um, yeah, it was a headache. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for joining. And thank you very much, Neil, for joining us. This was very informative. And we've got to have you back on again. Um, hopefully, it won't be when one of your other countries bans Bitcoin. Um, it'll be <laughs> in some happier occasion where, um, you know, um, good things are happening. But we should have you on again, nonetheless. <laughs> Take care. Sounds good. I've I've just joined um, Unchained. So hopefully, next time, I'll be talking a bit about um some aspect of Unchained's business. Ah, yes. Yeah, that is that, that is a good topic for, in the, for a seminar at some point, yeah. Great. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>